Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome to the Outdoor Biz Podcast. Your home for inspiring conversations with outdoor insiders. Each week, author, speaker, adventurer, and outdoor industry veteran Rick Sayers talks in-depth with iconic brand founders, sales and marketing pros, product designers, and industry rising stars. Listen in when Rick's guests offer actionable advice to land your ideal industry gig and grow your outdoor career. Catch us again when the conversation shifts to the hottest outdoor products, destinations, and the latest industry insights. And now, here's Rick. Episode 256 of the Outdoor Biz Podcast with Tightline Media CEO Chris Milgate. Brought to you this month by Audible. Chris spent a decade in TV news before starting Tightline Media in 2006. Her first book, My Place Among Men, is available now and her most recent film, Ocean to Idaho, capturing the migration of thousands of salmon on their return from the Oregon coast to the Idaho wilderness, premieres this summer. You can see the trailer at tightlinemedia.com. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, good to chat with you this morning. What's happening in your world today? Uh, today, the sun's out. We have snow on the ground, but uh-huh. um, and it, as we should this time of year in Idaho. So yeah, we like that. <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. That means there's, there's a little moisture to fill the rivers again as the cycle goes. Yes, as it goes. We want those rivers full. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need that here too. I'm in Bishop, and it's uh, pretty dry. Land of little rain, as Mary Austin dubbed it. <laughs> what uh, what triggered your love for the outdoors and adventure? That started at a young age, from what I can tell through your bio. I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. The Wasatch Mountains were my playground, and I always felt comfortable outside. Mm-hmm. And I've recognized that at an early age. And I, I didn't grow up hunting with my dad. I didn't grow up fishing with my dad. I grew up hiking with my dad. Okay. And my dad is forever lost. Mm. So when you hike with my dad, he's <laughs> no not sense going. of direction, eh? <laughs> right. Yeah. He doesn't have an internal compass. My mom says I don't have a danger gene, which is probably true, but my dad <laughs> doesn't have an internal compass. And so we would wander endlessly and he would never admit he was lost. <laughs> but uh, I found that by following his dusty frame down in a little trail forever and ever that I learned patience, persistence, yeah. And resi- and resilience and all those things help me do my job today. Yeah. Yeah, that's but, interesting. Yeah, I would just follow when I was little. I didn't question if we were lost, but I knew <laughs> darn well we were. And yeah. I as I got older I figured that out. But I still knew, lost or not, that I was comfortable outside. That's where I feel whole. That's very cool. Do you have any what did you get in any really major 
lost events, like you had to spend the night or you know, it took you all night to get home, any of that kind of stuff? Um, I think, well, as far as last goes, like, I don't remember us like needing a rescue. Okay. Now, uh, on a trail race recently, they pulled the flags ahead of me. And yes, I did get oh. legitimately lost. And it took uh, some <laughs> some people on the ground coming to find me because I wow. went in the wrong direction. But when I was little, there was nothing serious like that. Mm-hmm. I do remember hiking in the high Uintas and there was nobody there. Mm-hmm. And we came across in one day during one hike, um, this meadow with about five bull moose laying down in it. <laughs> and I've always remembered that thinking, this is it. This is like what you're going to see every time you hike. And that's certainly yeah, yeah. not the case, right. but you know, thank goodness he was lost. We saw amazing things. I'll bet. I'll bet. And I have no idea of how to get to that spot now. And he probably doesn't either, but yeah. Because we kind of wandered, we found some amazing places. And in that same trip, we also got stuck in the pouring rain. And I remember throwing everything into the truck, <laughs> soaking wet, and leaving in the middle of the night because we were drowning. <laughs> yeah, got wet. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. you're right. When you get lost, you, you find some pretty cool stuff. It's, it's Getting lost is not always a bad thing. True. Yeah. And. So your bio also says uh, you had a fear of men and beards. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time hiking with my dad yeah. without that danger dean that my mom says I don't yeah. have. Did he have a beard? Uh, my dad did not have a beard okay. growing up. Okay. It was a clean-shaven household is what oh, we grew up with. Okay. But I, um, as long as I've been comfortable outside, I've always also been afraid of beards it's just like being born left-handed mm-hmm, it's just mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how i was born huh. and as i got older i kind of figured out why i was painfully shy and i didn't want to talk to anybody but with a beard for sure it was Forget out of the question huh. yeah and now that i'm older and i've had time to kind of think through it i've figured out what it is when i was younger i studied people i wanted to know what made them tick mm-hmm. what what worked <laughs> in their <laughs> speaking style what didn't you know i knew i was going to be a storyteller and as a storyteller i needed to be able to ask questions and get over being shy yeah so i would study people so when i was shy and i would look away because i didn't want you to look at me i would still study you and if you had a beard i couldn't see your facial expression right and so uh as a child you have to realize what that means just like the kids that are dealing with faces that have masks over them now yeah a beard to me was kind of like a mask and i couldn't read that person's character Mm -hmm. i felt like they had something to hide because they were hiding under hair Mm -hmm. and so that made me think that there was something iffy about them now now i run around with beards in the woods all the time and i realize that the beard does not determine the character right (laughs) but when i was little i thought they were hiding something with all that hair yeah, when you're a little kid, it's interesting how you respond to some of the different, you know, looks or facial expressions too. Sometimes you, you just it doesn't mean what you think it means. So that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And yeah. so much of that is lost. You know, we get into this pandemic and we yeah. think, okay, we can make these adjustments, but there is much lost in our face yeah. when we cannot see half of it when we have a discussion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can so see, much is lost. Yeah, you can see a lot in the eyes, but not all of it. You got to need that whole face. That's a good. Point. Yeah. Have you tested how much you have to smile with a mask on before it reaches your eyes? <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, I find myself smiling a lot more too, just to get my eyes sparkly. You know, so people know I'm not mad at them. <laughs> right, and I mean, if you were to take that mask off, it's a goofy grin. It's the mouth right, open. Exactly. He's fully showing. Exactly. To get it to reach your eyes. Yeah, exactly. You have to put a big old smile on. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. How did your writing career get started? Did that start at a young age? 
Yes, I started writing. Um, yeah, I remember even in elementary school, I could always write. I liked English. I understood sentence structure. Mm. I understood what worked and how to break it apart and make it work even better. Mm-hmm. And then through junior high and high school, that kind of carried through. And you take that test in high school that says, here's what you should be when you grow up. Right. And of course, mine said communicator. And of course, everyone laughed at that. How is the shy girl going to be a reporter? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah. But I knew what I was going to be, and I was going to figure out how to get over all my quirks and learn to be a storyteller. And so I knew my major when I went to college. It was broadcast journalism. Wow. I was going to Good tell you stories on TV in the 10 o'clock news. Wow. And I never, I never wavered from that. Yeah. I could always write. Huh. And that was my strong point. I learned to shoot. I learned to read script in a voice that sounds like we're talking and not reading. You know, there's mm-hmm. all these little nuances to it. Yeah. And then I worked for TV stations for a decade, one TV station or another around the country. And the whole point was to get to a bigger market. And, mm-hmm. you know, I came from Salt Lake City. That's a big TV market. I wanted to get back there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then as I moved around, wow, you know, my job was great, but my lifestyle sucked. And I mm-hmm. worked at 11 o'clock at night. And, Eesh, yeah. you know, my husband didn't like you know, some of the places that we live. <laughs> and so <laughs> right about the time that the Internet was, you know, <laughs> born. I realized all the mediums were going to mesh. And so after 10 years of TV contracts, I went freelance. And what that did for me was instead of just working for one TV station, I could work for all of them. Yeah. And I could work for newspaper, magazine, radio, web. Mm -hmm. I could work for all of them. Everybody. So because I could always write, I could write for any medium. And because I could shoot, I knew how to frame up a shot for video and for photo and what needed. I understood the specs for laying it out in paper versus mm-hmm. on screen. Mm-hmm. And so everything kind of translated really well for me. But the basic was I always knew how to write. I have an obsession with words. I'm terrible with numbers. Don't mm-hmm. make me do math. Mm-hmm. But I can write you an essay all day long. Interesting. And I'm always playing with words in my head. And so uh, my brother and sister always teach me that I have my own alphabet. And I have since I was little. (laughs) So that's that's kind of been my saving grace where I could always write about anything for any medium. And that has kind of evolved into where I'm at now with Tightline Media as a freelancer. That's fortunate, too, that you you recognize that early on. I mean, that's huge to to know that. Yeah. What inspired you to pick up a camera? The inspiration for picking up the camera came when I realized that while I had all of these words and I could put them in perfect order. There was a visual component. I wanted to see what went with those words. Mm -hmm. And that's why I chose the video TV medium when I did right from the get go. Video is my base. That's my primary world. And when you see nowadays, there's a lot of films with a lot of slow-mo in them. I think the reason we're seeing that slow-mo happen in film is because you have a lot of still photographers shooting videos Mm -hmm. and they're shooting those videos with a still camera and they're used to thinking in a single frame of Uh, still interesting Mm -hmm. and i come from the brain that's used to seeing action Mm -hmm. and i want things to happen in real time and we don't move in slow-mo so rarely will i put slow-mo in my videos right and then having that base of video be my world it was a pretty easy transition to learn how to shoot photo. I've shot video for 25 years. I've shot photo for 15. Gotcha. And I had, I had no problem taking a class from a professional photo- photographer mm-hmm. to teach me how to use my camera in manual mode versus auto mode. Mm-hmm. 
And the class wasn't about framing. I already knew how to frame up subjects and what, how to tell that story. It was about how to use the different apertures and yeah, the shutter technical speeds. Side, right? yeah. yeah. You know, some of that translates between a video camera and a photo, but not everything. Yeah. Yeah. So I picked that up, but I've always wanted to see what you were showing me. And what that means in a story is on video, you know, that the guy that I'm in the fishing boat with is wearing a blue jacket. Mm-hmm. When I write that for a newspaper or a magazine, I have to tell you he's in a blue jacket. Right. So the writing style is a little different. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you picked up on that visual. Where do you th- what do you think? triggered that is it just the actual experience you had in in television i think that i chose the visual medium right out of the gate because i've always been (laughs) obscenely aware of what's going on around me Uh and i knew at a young age back clear back when i was studying faces that i had that visual Uh, mm -hmm. uh, desire to see what's going on versus spell it out i've always liked to write but i didn't want to have to always spell out everything i wanted you to see it right and i can see that in my own kids now you know when our when our boys turn 12 they each get a trip with me when they turn 18 they get a trip with my husband oh cool so when the oldest one turned 12, he chose San Francisco because our boys play hockey and he wanted to see the Blackhawks play uh, the Sharks in San Jose. Okay. And we st- we stayed in downtown San Francisco in the financial district. Wow. And he looked just like me when I was little. We walked around downtown. And when you're in a big city, people put on blinders. They don't look at the well, people Well, he was on probably gobsmacked by all the... T- it blew him away. Oh, and I think that's one of the reasons we do these trips. We yeah. live in Idaho. Yeah. Idaho Falls is pretty small. I want them to be exposed to all different kinds of lifestyles. Right. And you have to go to a different city to get that. Yep. And so he was blown away by what he saw. And he said on the first day, he said, Mom, there's no one looks at each other. <laughs> there's cement everywhere and the only bird i've seen is a pigeon (laughs) and so he i can see that that was totally me when i was little i was really aware of how people were not connected with each other yeah and not connected with the world around them yeah yeah still still to this day even more so maybe in some places yeah 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 and so that's that's how i was when i was little and it's really neat to see that in my kids now that's very cool yeah where does your entrepreneurial spirit come from are there entrepreneurs in your family (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I that I don't have a danger gene, but I might have a crazy gene. What it is? Uh, I will say this: um, my father is by far the proudest workaholic I've ever known, mm. and I pick up my workaholic te- workaholic tendencies from him. What did he do? Um, he is. Oh, you'll love this. My <laughs> father is an architect but of a very specific genre. If you walk into a building with my father, he will always look up and he always looks up because he's looking for the sprinkler heads. (laughs) Okay. Gotcha. (laughs) My dad makes sure your building doesn't burn down. Well, that's good. (laughs) Much needed. (laughs) Yes. And um, there were several times growing up, we had, he had a den in our basement and time and time again, he would start businesses on his own and try to have his own business of sprinkle fire sprinkler Mm, design. Yeah over and over and over again. And I remember growing up with that. And so when I decided to go freelance, I honestly, I was really hesitant to start Tightline Media because my dad had tried so many times to, to start. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did not want my family relying on me <laughs> and then me not being able to really start. Yeah. And so to be at the 
be at the mark where Tightline Media is turning 16 years old. Wow, good for you. Yeah, uh, I've made it through the recession and the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, by the skin of my teeth sometimes, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's significant to me. And I also think it's significant to my father. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah. You started yeah. and you and you, you know, you haven't finished yet, but you're still going. I mean, you got it off the ground. That's, I can relate to that with, we talked about this before we turned the mic on about the podcast. I mean, it's, and my, I get mine from my grandfather. Same thing. He start. he was always twink, you know, tinkering with ideas and started this and started that. So I can totally relate. Yep. That's where it is. Interesting. And so tell our listeners about, we talked a little bit about your TV news career. What did you like most about that? Oh, the storytelling. Gotcha. What I like most mm-hmm. about TV was the storytelling. Mm-hmm. But in TV news, um, I had to learn. In, I had to learn early on that I needed to create an instant rapport with strangers. Yep. You have to have a rapport with somebody before they will talk to you. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know them, I mean, I'm meeting people, new people every day, and I've got to do a story for live live story for the five o'clock, six o'clock, 10 o'clock. And there's got to be at least two interviews in that story. That's six new people a day that I have to develop an instant rapport with and get them to tell me their secret. Not easy. Not easy. (laughs) Not easy at all. And so I like, uh, I'm intrigued by challenge. I think that's something that becomes pretty obvious in me when you talk to me about my work, Mm. when you look at my stories, I'm pretty obsessive about what I do and I can wear you out with my uh, over eager sense of being when it comes to covering the outdoors and doing it mm-hmm. in a proper, proper storytelling manner. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that I could tell a story and frankly tell that story in two minutes because of in a newscast, it's got to be within two minutes. Quick. That's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. So you don't waste words. You get right to the point. Yeah. That's a great skill. So even when a magazine will say, we need you to write a thousand words, that's a lot. Yeah. And uh, a book, 50,000 words, <laughs> yeah. that's a lifetime to me. <laughs> and when I come from a world of two-minute news, I'm not going to waste any words. So mm-hmm. even if you put me on a thousand-word magazine story or a 50,000-word book, every single word has purpose in there. There's no fluff because I come from two minutes of news where you didn't add any extra fluff. So do you think it's harder for you to write like in those big, long magazine articles and, and books and stuff because of that? Or you just have to work harder to, to you know, make it a detailed story? I find that writing um, length longer than 500 words mm-hmm. is harder for me. Mm-hmm. And I know why it's harder. It's because I come from where you did quick, fast turn Two minutes, yeah. news. You shot it, wrote it, edited it the same day, probably within a two to four hour time frame. And I'm used to that pace. Yeah. It's hard to get me to slow down mm-hmm. and work at a longer pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, even on magazines that might have like, you know, they're planning a year out right now. Yeah. If you give me an assignment right now, I want to work on it right now. I don't want to work on it in May yeah. or an August <laughs> issue. Right. So I've had to learn to pace myself a little better. And I think that's been a good thing to learn because as I've learned to pace myself, I've also learned to tolerate lengthy pieces. Mm-hmm. And there is no doubt that within a lengthy piece, you are a stronger writer because you add to it things that you cannot fit in two minutes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. The stories mean more. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah, the story is more important because you put more detail in it. You don't just put fluff in it. It's it's rel- very relevant to the story, whereas a lot of people write these things. It's like, well, you could have said that in three words, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I wrote My Place Among Men, I sent in my first draft, and it was 15, one, five, 15,000 words. And wow. I was like, oh, I'm spent. Like, that's like <laughs> the most I've ever written. I'm exhausted. (laughs) My editor cut that in half, sent me back 8,000 words and said, not good enough. Dig deeper. Wow. Yeah. And I had no idea that I had deeper in me, but I did. Yeah. And it strengthened my writing to a whole new level that was so obvious that the year my book came out, which was last year, um, all the outlets that I was working for said, wow your writing has advanced so much mm-hmm. and I knew exactly why it's because I had to push to reach 50,000 words yeah. and make every single word count. Yeah. And then your writing goes to a whole new level when you have to meet that type of challenge and I'll it bet. shows up in all your other work. Yeah. Boy, it sticks with you. Yeah. Once you do that, I'll bet yeah, you write everything you write. Yeah. That, well, good on the editor. That was awesome. <laughs> and we'll link I to have that. A thick skin, so I can <laughs> take a criticism and then I just suck it up and move on with yep. it. But we'll do it. Dig in. Yep, I hear you. Yeah. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. That's I look forward to getting that book. Sounds like a great story. Is your time in TV the inspiration behind Tightline Media? Is that where that came from? My time in TV was in a roundabout way an inspiration for Tightline Media. Mm-hmm. Working um, you know, about two years at a time under contract for one station or another. I worked for every station but CBS. That's kind of just how wow. it worked out. Yeah. And so um you you learn a lot about the industry. You work in small markets where you have to do every job from running the teleprompter to editing your own stories to whatever happens, it has to happen up by you because small markets, that's how it goes. And yeah. bigger markets, everyone fights about who has to do what because no one wants to do anything. <laughs> and so that was weird to me. I just wanted to work. I just wanted to tell stories. And yeah. In TV, I had to cover crops and crime and whatever else was on the police scanner for the day or, or down at City Hall. And... Uh, I would I know that from the very beginning, I was always shoving outdoor stories into people's TVs. Mm. There was not an outdoor beat, but I wanted there to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know that those stories mattered. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you hike, bike, hunt, fish, whatever it is you do outside. The reason that opportunity exists is because something's going on that's conserving our natural resources to, yeah. the, to make it so that you can recreate. Yep. And so those stories really mattered to me. So I would shove them in your TV anyway under and I'd figure out how to make them the top story of the night. It was some kind of news hitch. Okay. And so by the time I decided to go freelance, yes, I knew video was going to be my base. But instead of being general assignment, I niched out. 95% of what I do is outdoor related. Mm-hmm. And that's a conscious decision. When I went freelance, it was because I didn't want to cover crops and crime anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those still come into my stories. You know, if we've got crime, it's usually poaching, mm-hmm. wildlife trafficking. Mm-hmm. Crops, certainly that matters. We've mm-hmm. got deer running through cornfields. Right. So those elements still matter. And I liked having to learn how to cover every possible beat. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to really hit the outdoors. Yeah. So I, I niched down to that when I started. Thailand that's pretty media. smart. Yeah, that's pretty smart. Yeah. That's, uh, they say the, the riches are in the niches. So it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't experienced that yet, but it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I've experienced it either, but if I wanted to make a lot of money, I would have had a fatter wallet if I'd have done something else. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we're, we're on the outdoors cause we love it. That's for sure. 
<laughs> yeah, there, you know, there's something to uh, the flexibility of yeah. my lifestyle, yeah. uh, the opportunity for fresh air yeah. that yeah. that you can't replace with just a fatter wallet. That's right. And That's right. If I have a bad day and I start to gripe, my husband will just quickly say, you know what? We can shove you back in a cubicle. Do you want to do that? <laughs> yeah, good fun. And I'm totally night. over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm over it you. as soon as he says that. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a good thing about the outdoors. We can just go out and blow off some steam and see everything and anything we want to see. Yeah, and I but I do think there's a on the flip side of that. Everyone thinks it's just fun and glamorous to work outside. Mm. I'm telling you right mm-hmm. now, a 15 hour day in a wildfire where my nose bleeds all day and mm-hmm. I'm hundreds of miles from decent food in a bathroom. Those are not glamorous days, right? And there's a lot of work that goes into those shots. You know, the guy that's fishing, he's having a great day of play. Me trying to shoot footage of him fishing is not play. It is right. work. Yeah. No, it, it's all work. I think that's the thing that we all, whatever you cho- choose to do as a vocation, there are going to be parts of it that are work. I don't care how much fun most of it is. You know, I I have two degrees in recreation and, you know, made a choice early on to make the outdoors my vocation. But there are days when, as you're a sales guy or you're a product guy or whatever, that there it's work and just the nature of the beast, I think. Yeah, and I think that there's a real tendency by people that want to especially get into the outdoor work that will do it for nothing. And uh, I worry about that because yeah. this, is, this isn't a hobby for me. This mm-hmm. is how I feed my family. And I have to make money or I have to do something else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is a lot of that. People are selling their services for lower amounts, and I think that they are doing a disservice to a lot, a lot of the outdoor pros. And eventually, they're going to find out that you know there, there is, they're going to come to a point where they're not going to go to that lowest bidder because they want to make some money too. So it's you might as well start out making a decent, you know, charging a decent amount so you can continue. But that could be a whole another. Maybe that should be a whole another episode. Actually, that's a good one. That is a good one, and I think. A lot of the reason you'll see that undercutting of value across the industry mm-hmm. is people are doing this on the side of some op- of, of their office job. Yeah, and or they just want to break into it and they think that's the way to do it. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. You know, I helped mentor my neighbor's grandson. Mm-hmm. She came over the other day and she was so excited. And she's like, he graduated. <laughs> he's out of college and he's writing for this newspaper. And I'm so glad you helped him. And I said, oh, I'm so happy to hear that. I yeah. love it. And she said, yeah, he's getting paid in beer. <laughs> oh jeez! Yeah. I said, "Oh yeah. no, that's yeah. not how this goes down." Right. He is not going to be able to feed his family on beer, and the beer is going to wear out, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Beer and gear—you can't, you can't make make a living and feed your face no. on beer and gear. So, yeah, <laughs> you need dollars in there somewhere, folks. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna take a little break and give some love to our sponsor. Hey, do you love to read, but don't always have the time to sit down with a good book? I'm the same, and sometimes I just feel like having someone else tell the story. Well, if you use Audible, then you know. If not, you're missing out. It's like having a library in your phone, and I use it a lot. Audible helps the miles fly by when I'm on the road as I'm enjoying great books I discover or are recommended by friends. Get your free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash theoutdoorbizpodcast. There are over 180,000 titles to choose from. Go to audibletrial.com slash theoutdoorbizpodcast and start your free 30-day trial with Audible today. And now back to the show. So can you talk a little bit about your new film, Ocean to Idaho? I saw the trailer this morning. That looks pretty cool. Oh, I'm glad you saw the trailer. It's very likely you're the first person to see it because I just finished it. Oh, really? Oh, wow. It's kind of 
coming, like everyone is going to learn soon that it's out. So I love that you got to see it. Yeah, it's cool. Um, okay, so the film that comes out in 2021 is Ocean to Idaho, and it follows salmon migration from the Oregon coast to the Idaho wilderness. And the magic behind all that actually started in early 2020 when I went on the road to follow that migration round. So it's a multi-year project and that's unusual for me to spread something out like this, hmm. but I wanted one year where I actually shot the migration is how wow. it had to be done. Yeah. And then the next year is when it comes out because by the time the migration's done, we're into snow and people don't want to watch something like that. In the, they want, I want them to watch this story when the salmon are moving through the area again. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. And it's the longest piece I've ever edited for video. So oh, wow. it's, it's quite a crunch on time. But the reason so many people know about Ocean to Idaho already a year in advance is because I let them follow me virtually on the road trip. Oh, good. That's it. smart. Good, good. Yeah. And so everybody was at home. You know, I knew this was what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm going to follow salmon migration from the ocean to Idaho. I said that October 2019. <laughs> By March of 2020, my plans were down the drain. And I said, yeah. I'm going to follow salmon migration from the ocean to Idaho. Pandemic be damned. Yeah. And so what I had to do was dump all my plans and figure out how to follow these fish. Because we were not moving, but the fish still were. Right. And I wanted to follow them safely and responsibly. Mm-hmm. And that meant living out of a truck and a camper all summer, following the migration route through Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Did you, you do that solo? Solo. Wow. All by myself. Wow. And I had masks. I had a temperature chart. I had to take my temperatures for several weeks in advance before I even stepped foot in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And um, I started following the migration in June. And I finished with the last few dozen Chinook salmon that make it to mile 850 in central Idaho wilderness in cool. September. Wow. Very cool. And it was, it was um, alone. There is one stretch within that 850 miles that is all wilderness and there's no road. Mm. The only way to navigate that is a raft. And I, I navigated it on a raft because somebody that I know in Idaho picked up a permit because everyone from out of town could it come use Couldn't the tags they'd drawn? Right. Yeah. And so there was that 80-mile stretch of the 850-mile route when I wasn't alone because my family was with me, and we were on a raft with other families on their rafts, and we did whitewater rafting through that wilderness stretch. Wow, that's cool. Other than that, yeah, I was alone. That's amazing, and, yeah. Um, I shoot with five cameras, and I shot with five cameras by myself. Jeez. I lived out of a... Toyota Tundra and a four wheel camper. On top of that, I had to learn how to run everything in one day. <laughs> and when everything kind of fell into place and I said, I'm going and, and I'm going to have to do it in a way that isolates me. Toyota stepped in with, with wheels, four wheel camper stepped in with the house on top of the wheels. Yeah. And I knew I was going to go and yeah. I just needed somewhere safe to keep me and my gear and to isolate, mm-hmm. no one was allowed inside my camper or my truck. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't with anybody unless I was interviewing them. And then they were six feet away. I was totally self-contained. I didn't go in any stores. That's a story right there and it's in and of itself. Are you going to tell, yeah, tell that story or is that part of the film? That's, that's a great question. Is that Do I tell that story in the film or not? And yeah. right now, here's where I'm at. Letting people virtually follow me 
while they were stuck at home during the pandemic mm-hmm. really caught fire. I bet. People really liked seeing what was going on in the world through someone who has to cover it accurately and fairly. And, yeah. And I don't, I don't paint it pretty. This is what's happening. Yeah. Well, we all like to live vicariously through others sometimes. So that yeah. was, and yeah. I think during the pandemic that people really attached to yeah, that. And so I quickly took that road trip and morphed it into what became kind of its own standing identity. There's this whole library of episodes oh, wow. and they That'd came out cool. twice a week. Mm-hmm. People watched, I had a mile marker from mile zero to eight fifty, and I'd say we're at this mile marker, mm-hmm. and here's why we're here. They could follow this you on the, the map. Yeah, that's cool. yeah. This is the first of eight dam. That's why we're right here. Yeah, and then and then that would be on Thursday, and on Tuesday it was behind the scenes. Here's my temperature chart. Uh-huh. Here's my masks. Here's what happens when my camera breaks. Here's what <laughs> happens when I fall out of my camper. Yeah. And you know, here's what how, this is why my face is taped up on camera at the end. It's because I have stitches in my face. You know, they got to like live all that with me. Along yeah, the way. yeah. That, you can't plan that. And no, that, that's 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 a, that's a story developed. too. That's a film too. That's I think. Yeah, I think. And I mean. so, so I made all those episodes, and people kind of seem to like the idea of binge watching those now that they're all together. Yeah. So that's fun. Yeah. But when I started to edit the film, and I had 25 hours of footage. And I needed to fit it into a 26-minute show. It, it takes some serious prioritizing. Right. And as a journalist, in the truest sense of the word, there is no I in that story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That I perspective. Yeah. 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 And it's all about every person. I have every person along that migration route. Yeah. And what that water means to them. Yeah. And what's That's going on here cool. that helps fish. What's going on here that hurts fish. Yeah. You have to involve all those perspectives. I wanted everyone's perspective in this issue. Yeah. And I took it as my responsibility to cover it fairly, accurately, balanced. Mm-hmm. You know, you start talking about dams. Should they stay or should they go? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You damn well better get both sides of that story. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I decided in the film itself. I pulled myself out of it as a personality mm-hmm. and it's strictly coming from the perspective of everyone that lives along the migration route. Mm-hmm. That's smart. And then I'm going to create a director's cut that pulls it out and says, Oh yeah, here's the spot where I broke my camera. And right. this is what happened right. that day. Right. Right. And here, Oh, let me tell you about these, you know, this part here. I showed up at mile eight fifty. With stitches in you must have been places. haggard. Yeah, God, I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, I think that would be a good yeah. story right there too, though. I think yeah. there's a lot of people that like to know, you know, the behind the scenes, and that just got verified, validated by all the people that followed you. So, yeah, yeah. And I think you know, it's pretty uncomfortable to watch yourself fall apart as you're watching the fish fall apart. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll bet. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end, the fish died, and I didn't. And so now I have to decide how all that gets to roll out. Yeah, and the film yeah. itself won't have me in it, but the director's cut will cool and the road trip episodes definitely have me in them man i can't wait to see it we'll link to that in the show notes too it's called ocean to idaho and there's a trailer there that sounds super fun i'm looking forward to that yeah i i uh, got to go to the bant film festival a few few times um back when i was with eagle creek and just all those kinds of films that you're talking about i really was inspired not only by the film but then some of the backstories when you got to go back and talk to the the director and the filmmaker and so i think there's there's an opportunity to do both of those things yeah very cool yeah i'd agree and i think even more so now the one thing that social media has done is it has changed the expectations on the audience's side yeah 
Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in news, I could do a live shot at 10 o'clock and tell you what happened mm-hmm. on the TV screen and you would watch me in your living room, but you couldn't tell me anything. Mm-hmm. You could call the newsroom if you wanted to complain right. or say, I, I need to know something else about this. Mm-hmm. But with social media, you can actually connect with that person more. And so your expectation grows. You want a more personal connection with that journalist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I realize now that that, you know, halfway through my career, that was a significant shift. Mm-hmm. And I need to be open to the idea that people wanted to know what it was like to cover this story yeah. and not just know the story. They're more advanced now. They want more than just the story. Yeah. They want the backstory. Well, and I think they've realized they can get it now, right? Back in the day, they couldn't get it. They had no way, well, I shouldn't say no way, but very few ways to reach out to the the producers and the filmmakers. But now, like you say, it's just, it's right there. It's on social media. Just call them up, you know, send them an email, you know, whatever it yes. might be. Yeah. Do you have any desire to make a feature-length film? Do I have any desire to make a feature-length film? I thought hard about this question for a long time. <laughs> uh, you know, when, when I say I come from two-minute news, yeah. the, the longer things get, the more of a lifetime they feel. Uh-huh. But they also, the challenge intrigues me. Uh of adding length. I honestly didn't think I could pull off a book. Mm-hmm. I do not have the attention span to sit down that long. <laughs> but honestly, I uh, broke my leg in three places coaching kid hockey. Eef. And I was on the couch for four months growing bone around a rod. Oof. And I had to sit down. I was on drugs that made my muscles hold still. Right. And so you can crank out a pretty decent chunk of word count when you have to do that. <laughs> yes, you can. Now, I don't want to do that to create a feature film, right. but uh, 26 minutes for Ocean to Idaho will be the longest I have ever produced. Mm-hmm. When I produce shows for Idaho Public TV, they are for a half hour format, which mm-hmm. is 26 minutes. Mm-hmm. Most of my other films have hovered around the 10 minute mark. Right. You know, uh, On the Internet, shoot, I still turn out two minute movies yeah. because mm-hmm. that's what people want to watch. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't have the time. Yeah. But, you know, as we talked about the audience expectation growing, I think that when someone says that they're going to make a feature film, your first instinct is to think, well, no one's going to watch that. It's too long. Mm. But think of the other side of that. Our audience's education level and expectation level is growing. Mm-hmm. You know, they will sit down for it even if it's long, mm-hmm. if it's good enough. Well, they will and they do. I mean, look at the explosion of Netflix and, and Amazon Prime Video and all these places, YouTube, where we watch all these things, especially now in the pandemic. But even before the pandemic, people, I think they like the story part of it. Like I was saying about the, the backstory, the director's cut, if you will, of, of Ocean to Idaho. That's going to be a phenomenal story. That could be an interesting film. Yeah, and I think that there's the, the intrigue of a feature film is there, but I think it's only there for me now <laughs> because I've grown into it. Yeah. There was no way back when I was doing two minute news that I could have seriously sure, right. considered a feature film. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and now I've cranked out 50,000 words for a book. So, Hey, yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe feature film might be the next link. There you go. Well, you heard it here, folks. You heard it here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's sit with the 26 minutes that haven't come out yet. Yeah. Let's see how that goes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One thing at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's get back to some other questions. <laughs> um, so you, you do a lot of outdoor activities. Do you have a favorite? Favorite outdoor activity. Something that you, when you're not filming, when you just need to 
go out with the kids or just blow off some steam? Do you go fishing? Do you go hiking? What do you do? I am a fly fisher. Mm-hmm. I am a trail runner. I am a rafter, a hiker, a biker. I'm all those. Things. I think you do it all. Yeah. Yeah. If I get a day off and um, I want to get out, it's not so much about what I'm doing. It's where I'm doing it. Uh, okay. That That's what matters to me. Yeah. The farther away, the more remote it is, the more enticing it is to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I, and I think you, uh, even if I'm like a high mountain lake, you're not going to catch a big five pound lunker. Mm-hmm. And you're going to work your butt off to get up there and you're going to catch maybe something as long as your hand. Yeah. But that fishing to me is so much more rewarding because I work so hard to get to it and there's nobody else around. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to do okay farther away and Trevor running's the same way. I'm an ultra. So I run distance mm-hmm. and man, you get me back in there on the Continental Divide, which is deep wilderness on the Idaho, Montana border. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to really feel like I'm in my element because no one's around me. Whereas yeah. other runners, particularly women, they feel more comfortable running where there's people. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel better running where there's no people. <laughs> yeah. I'm the same way. I, I, I do better when there's, I mean, I've been this way. My, parents say since i was a kid i don't talk to anybody i don't always play by myself i still do that and i still find that i would much like you know living here in bishop there's a bunch of places that i can go fishing but i don't like to go there because there's you know you got to find an open piece of water i want to go somewhere where i can just go fish and uh, or hike or whatever it is so it's interesting i never heard it put that way though but that's crystallizes it for me too yeah yeah so you'll see you'll see me doing any of those activities yeah, um, I I work in the hike and bike world and the hook and bullet world, mm-hmm. so I've got to be pretty versatile for all of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and my kids, they've been exposed to all of it. They're little river rats. <laughs> they, the one's a heck of a runner. He's so much faster than me now, mm. but I can go farther than him. So that yeah. makes me feel better. <laughs> there you go. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's shift gears a little bit here. Do you have any suggestions or advice for folks wanting to get into the outdoor biz or grow their career or the filmmaking biz? Writing. Ooh, which one do you want to hit? Outdoor? Or um, let's do outdoor. I, I, let's stick with outdoor because that's pretty much what I ask everybody. And do you want to get into outdoor? Or outdoor as a business? Well, yeah, outdoor as a business. I mean, I think outdoor. I think a lot of folks, you know, that listen to this show, they listen for the stories, but they also either are in the business or looking to get in the business. And okay, yeah. All right. So when it comes to the outdoor business. I have a pretty interesting take on it, and it comes from two and a half decades of watching our industry shift. (laughs) And I'm so impressed by what I see within our industry as things shift and what matters now. And the way to come at this business, if I were coming at it now, would be to look at it from the user's perspective in every In every way. Mm -hmm. And that is because the way we value our natural resources has made a dramatic shift in the last century. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in the way that outdoor users lay out their expectations. And those users are your customers. Mm -hmm. So a century ago, we we were mining, logging. Drilling, pretty cavalier about the outdoor space. Yeah, natural resources to us were what do we get out of them? Mm -hmm. What can they do for us with a dollar sign? Mm -hmm. Now look at where we're at today. Yes, they're still mining, logging, drilling, developing, 
little bit of damming, all that's still going on. But you know what? Now there's a seat at the table for that natural resource as it is. Yeah. Natural resources hold a value for what they offer us as they are, or in many cases that you see today, as they will be as they're put back together. Mm-hmm. That has a value now. Our natural resources hold, hold value beyond dollars. Right. And when your customers start realizing natural resources hold value beyond dollar, the way to connect to them is to also value those natural resources beyond dollar. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's a good thing as we as the world gets more populated and you know these places get more crowded, it becomes more important to think about those things, I think. Yeah, you know, it was amazing to me. I don't live very far from the DMV in Idaho Falls, Idaho. And um it's downtown. Everyone passes by downtown. But it was amazing to me to see how many out-of-state plates were in the parking lot of the DMV <laughs> getting licenses for Idaho during the pandemic. Yeah. California, Texas, Colorado, plates from everywhere coming here. And I live about an hour and a half from Yellowstone, so yeah. we already get an influx of travelers. Yeah. But the people, the, the travel, you see the people on the river, and they're usually tourists, and mm-hmm. they stop, and they visit, and then they move to Yellowstone. But the people in the parking lot at the Division of Motor Vehicles, all those out-of-state plates were coming to stay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're starting to see that push. There's the, you know, the animals start to shift with climate change. Mm-hmm. There's that whole shifting the migration routes as the temperature shifts. Mm-hmm. But I, you're also seeing with humanity. Yeah. They're pushing into places that have space, yeah. that have resources. Yeah. You're starting to see that. And even if people don't realize that's what's going on, that's what it is. They're pushing into safer places to be. Yeah, yeah. With more space. Yeah, I think you're right. And people are leaving the country too. Yeah, it's uh, we, we see it up here in Bishop, but more from a recreation perspective because the land is all pretty much owned. You can't – there's no – you know, they're not going to build more. The city in Bishop can't get a lot bigger because – the land is around them is already owned by Department of Water and Power and, and other folks. So that can't happen. Mm-hmm. But um, you see them out here recreating. It's interesting, though. I never thought of that. I never, you know, I haven't been to a small town like Idaho Falls. So that makes sense, though, because you read about it in the news and people are talking about it all over. People are looking to leave the country, leave the state. I mean, they're itching to get out of California because it's crowded and, you know, the, whether you believe or the, support the politics or not, it's it's just weird. So. Yeah. yeah, you know, you see all those the devastating wildfires in California. Oh no kidding, God, they yeah. want to run yeah, away yeah, from yeah, that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, when you get a fire of that size in Idaho wilderness, mm-hmm. no one lives there. Mm, right. Well, that's so, a thing. Yeah. It's a, it's it's a. I mean, it, it's fire at a grand scale, and it happens yeah. in more places in California. Mm-hmm. The problem in California is that people live there. When hopefully it won't it won't impact Idaho. People will not. You know, as more people go there. We got to make sure that we don't let them live there. They shouldn't live there, in my opinion, because <laughs> it, it's, it is a tricky thing. Yeah, sure. it's tough. What you know, and somebody, but somebody's got to call it right. Somebody's got to say no. We can't do this. You know, and we let them. We have these big fires in California, and then it burns all these places down. Then we rebuild them right where they were, and it happens again. It's like same thing on Florida yeah. with flooding. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, if you're not supposed to build in this zone, don't yeah, rebuild totally. in this zone. <laughs> right. yeah. You think that would make sense? All yeah, right, we but you know what? Someone's that, home. But... It gets crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, I get it. It's their home. Yeah, you're right. And some of these places thought... in these in these, you know, remote towns and stuff, people have lived there for hundreds of years. So it's in their ancestors' home. You know. Yeah, I saw a bumper sticker the other day. Uh, <laughs> in Idaho, 
And it was the shape of Idaho, the state, yeah. with the panhandle. And it said, F off, we're full. <laughs> a lot of folks are saying that. Yep, a lot of <laughs> folks are saying that. Us Californians are, you know, I mean, the world said that to the U.S. in the pandemic. They don't want us, you know, coming in. So they wouldn't accept passports. And I'm sure states are saying that, too, for the same reasons, similar reasons anyway. Yeah, it's definitely going to make things interesting. And there's so much that has shifted lifestyle-wise because yeah, of the pandemic. Yeah. There's a lot that people aren't seeing yet. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things I think people aren't really quite seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this not is a just, major shift, yeah. Yeah, not just visiting the river and the trails as they mm-hmm. pass through. They're at the DMV getting a license. Right. They're staying. Right. That's going to be different for them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how about favorite books? Do you have any favorite books or do you have a book you give us gifts? Your book, of course. I give my book a lot. <laughs> I did something. You know, I find that writing a book puts you in this whole new realm. <laughs> and My Place Among Men is decades of the most dynamic news stories I've covered with my perspective added to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, I know that people like to read that. So when you read My Place Among Men, you're reading a legitimate news story yeah. with the perspective put into it that shows you what it's like to be in that moment. Right. And that can apply to every age, race, gender. And right. so people have really, I mean, I've got 12 year old little hockey kids reading it and I've got my neighbor that's 85 reading it. So that's cool. that, that matters. And if you can make a book like that, I'm drawn to those, but you know, an editor is going to tell you that that's not the best way to write. If mm-hmm. you niche down, it sells better. I'm already niched down because I'm in the outdoors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's some of that. If I have to pick, you know, if I'm going to pick a book that I want to give to someone, honestly, it's not a classic novel style book. Mm-hmm. It's a book that fits more to my two-minute attention uh-huh, span, yeah, uh-huh. and that's All the Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. Oh, cool. I love it. That's a good one. Yeah. I love the way he plays with words. Yeah. I love the way he breaks all the rules on what we think things look like and sound like, Right. and that he does it in about two minutes. He was an amazing writer. I mean- you know, to a, to get a little kid to sit down and write a book like that, and and then even adults, like you say, some of those books you read them as adults, like oh, I never I never read that before. You know, I never yeah. interpreted that way before. That's cool. How about your favorite piece of outdoor gear under a hundred dollars? My favorite piece of outdoor gear pushes the hundred dollar mark pretty hard. That's okay, but I think it's still worth it. It's uh, trail running shoes. Mm-hmm. That's so. Funny. Um, I've tried different brands and so there, it just, it kind of depends on what kind of, I think it all comes down to cushion. Yeah. Uh, I used to run barefoot, so I'm a minimalist. Oh, I wow. want as little as I can get on the bottom of my feet. I like to fill the ground mm-hmm. and, uh, I don't run barefoot anymore. I think after 15 miles, that's not a smart idea. Yeah. It's pretty hard on the knees, <laughs> but here's what I find about trail running shoes. I wore hiking boots forever. And when I broke my leg in three places one of the breaks was uh, the hockey puck hit my shin and then just kind of shattered the bone in every direction from oh, there wow. and so where a hiking boot rides up higher on the shin mm. that's a total no-go for that seam where rods and screws are inside my rebuilt leg yep i can do it but i don't like it yeah so i stopped wearing a high-rise hiking boot and I had trail runners in my closet because I run trail. Yeah. I started wearing that instead. And now I wear my trail runners when I'm not running. Yeah. My old pairs are my mowing shoes. <laughs> I go through several pairs a year. Yeah. And so uh, the bottom wears out before the top. So I just mow in them. <laughs> but I find that I'm also, 
uh, we went scouting for elk a few weeks ago and I wore trail runners mm-hmm. and we weren't, we weren't even on a trail Yeah. and we were bushwhacking and I found a whole, the whole, I found like a moose graveyard. It was like the whole remains of a moose and it's, um, oh, well, cool. rack and everything wow. totally undisturbed. And so we were way off trail and I was only in trail runners. And so a trail runner with a gator guard to keep out the gravel, Yeah. I find is so versatile and works in so many situations if i need to get in the river mm-hmm. they dry out quick yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. so I, I i pick trail running shoes because they are versatile way beyond trail yeah no i agree with you i don't wear hiking boots either stiff soles or any of that stuff nope i wear lightweight and off the time trail running shoes just because i have really bad knees but i agree with you i mean it's lighter it's it's you know less work on your leg and if you can get a you know good trail running shoe you get the support you need so i totally agree with you yeah and I would say that maybe with a heavy pack, you know, a multi-day backpacking trip where you've got your house on your back, or uh, my camera pack on my back for mm-hmm. extended time, mm-hmm. maybe that's not the best idea without ankle support. But by and large, yeah. I'm doing fine without wearing a big, heavy, stiff, clunky hiking boot. Yep, I'm with you. Yep, I'm the same. Yep. Um, as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to say to our audience or ask of our audience? I would ask you to do this. Stick your feet in the river, any river, the closest one you can get to. People say they don't have access to the outdoors, but you know what? You drink water and that water's coming from somewhere. Yeah. Find flowing water and stick your feet in it. I love it. It just makes that connection to our outdoor world that much more important to you if you can connect with it. And that's a simple way to do it. You don't need a lot of expensive gear. You don't have to drive far. Yeah. But just find a way to connect. And for me, that's just sticking your feet in the water. Perfect. I love it. That's a good one. That should be a t-shirt. Maybe I'll make a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt. And if people want to reach out to you, where's the best way, where's the best place for them to find you? The best way to reach. We'll link to all your social. Yeah. We'll link to all your social feeds. Yeah. So the best way to to, to find me would be to go through my company website, tightlinemedia.com. Okay, cool. We'll link to that in the show notes, too. Well, it's been great talking to you. I look forward to seeing you at one of the OWAA events soon. And, yeah. Uh, whenever we whenever we get back together. We will. It's coming. I think it's... And if we, and if we, there's an OR, we got to do that. We should for sure make sure. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If there's an in-person event where we can actually see people, we got to yeah. meet. Yeah, we will connect. Definitely. Well, thanks, Chris. I look forward to letting you know when this goes live and uh, talking to you next week uh, on the webinar, maybe. Or next month, I guess it is, on that webinar. Yeah, thank you. All right, thanks. Have a good day. Have a good holiday. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the Outdoor Biz Podcast. Be sure to visit our website, theoutdoorbizpodcast.com, where you'll find show notes with links to everything we talked about and more. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or spread the word and tell a friend about the show. That would really help us out, too. Be sure to tune in every week. And thanks again for listening to the Outdoor Biz Podcast with Rick Saez.
If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.